Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means shaking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hello and welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. No, this isn't Rob, this is Harry. He has leveraged me out to do the introduction for today because today is a very special episode. It's the 300th episode of the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. It's a milestone, it's been a hell of a journey getting here so far, and we wanted to do something special for you, the listeners. So, what we did, we um, recorded a, a big uh, Q&A session uh, with Robert, which was uh, several hours long. And what we've done, we've edited it down to kind of the best of, uh, the best hour of that, uh, that Q&A. So we cover a wide topic from everything we've been doing on the podcasts, past interviews, the special guests we've been having, to uh, a lot of uh, other content that Rob covers in the Q&A. So I just want to say a massive thank you to all the listeners who have um, been listening over the past almost three years to get us this far to 300 and uh, here's to another 300. Thank you very much. And remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Wow, I want to say thank you for joining us for the 300th episode of the podcast. So you're with me for the afternoon. Yay! <laughs> cool. So you know how I roll with, um, if you've ever been to a masterminding session with me, if you've ever been to an event that I'm running. I'm all here about you and helping you. So, you know, I don't do PowerPoint presentations or scripted speeches. I haven't done them for many years. I just want to give you the very best experience that you can have for the next few hours and help you overcome the challenges in your business, in your personal brand, or or just anything that's blocking you. Um, If you could say I have specialisms, I don't really like to say that I'm an expert, but if you could say there are things I'm a specialist in, It would probably be being an entrepreneur, uh, business, maybe your own personal growth and development, authoring, podcasting, building a sort of a personal brand. I'd say they're the things I feel confident about. So you can ask me anything you want. And I thought a nice way to get kicking off the 300th episode. Well, if you're listening, you actually can't ask me anything. You just have to listen to everybody else's questions. Um, But if you're in the room, I thought we'd kick off with me helping you. I don't do politics. I don't do religion. I don't do marriage advice. (laughs) Although if my social media following is starting to get a bit shit, you might see me do all of those. Um, so I'm all yours. What's your name, sir? Hi, Robin. Uh, sorry, that was an introduction for you all to say hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Hello. Does that feel better when people are like, yeah, yeah. Much better. Good. Um, you were a coach before Progressive. Is that right? You were coaching? Yeah, I, um, I had like a, a personal stroke, sort of small business coaching practice. Um, which Mark made me retire to focus on progressive only, yeah. My question is, did your experience in progressive change, improve your attitude towards coaching and your ability to coach people? Hugely. How? Um, 
I think the greatest, the greatest thing I've learned in building a business empire, however you define that, is managing oneself, managing your emotions. Like when you first start your business and you hire someone and they mess something up, the very first thing you'll think is, I'm paying you to do a job and you've fucked it up. But that emotion and the reaction that then comes out of that emotion does not serve you to grow your business or to manage that staff member well. When someone goes and trolls you on social media and, and makes lies about you or your business that could put you into disrepute, you know, emotionally, you either want to go and hide away, which doesn't serve you, depending on your personality, or you want to go and, you know, fight back, which can make the situation 10 times worse. And when you run a business in the early years, because you love that business, because that business has got your name and face all over it, because you're passionate about it, you take everything really personally. And whilst that's good because you're passionate, that leaks out with attrition, i.e. it pushes customers, clients and staff away from you. So what running progressive, unlimited success, writing all the books, doing all the podcasts, growing my training businesses, growing my property businesses, our best turnover for our training businesses was 19 million pounds. That doesn't even include all the property-related income. So whenever I've talked about income, I've, don't, I've never added the property income into it. But that was by far our most chaotic and in some ways our hardest year as well. So generally speaking with me, most of the trouble I've got myself into in my life and in my business are when I've opened my mouth. And I d thanks for the feedback. <laughs> That's what suppressed laughter looks like. Now, contrary to popular belief, I usually don't open my mouth to the detriment of my business proactively. It's usually reactively. But learning to feel the emotion, anger, frustration, guilt, shame, Bitterness, jealousy, envy, overwhelm, all the emotions you feel. Now, usually when people feel emotions, what do they do? They lash out. Now, some hold in, but in the end, you have to lash out. You have to. Or you become ill. You have dis-ease. Um, so whether it's frequently or infrequently, but then more like of a flip out. So you have to find this way of managing your emotion, allowing the emotion to stew a bit, simmer inside, maybe let it get to boiling point, and then have some kind of release, stress release, or um, just releasing the pressure somehow, and then you communicate. So... 
with staff, with my business partner, with my wife, with my kids, with clients, on social media, on my brand. Usually my best communication that serves myself and the greater interest of my community the best is when I've managed and coached myself. That's the greatest gift, your business, success, stress, pressure, challenge. That's the greatest gift that you learn from that. But it's, pro it's probably one of the hardest things as well. Usually in a crisis situation, you reacting emotionally makes it worse. So, I'll give you a few tips. The first thing is, when you feel something, try and have this parting of your brain. Someone says something, you get angry. And you half part of your brain over here to go where the anger is. And the other half goes, look at that angry twat. You could speak more kindly to yourself. I tend to speak to myself in a rather a direct fashion. So you, you separate yourself from the emotion and you notice it. Look what's happening there. I think that's step one. That's self-awareness of the emotion. Because you know when you've sent that email that you regretted or you flipped out that after you regret, that's because you can't differentiate who you are from how you feel. But you are not your anger. Your anger is just a reaction. You are much more wise and balanced than your anger. Anger is only one of the emotions, there's plenty of them. But. So you separate it, then you observe it. Oh, look at what you're doing. You do that all the time there, don't you? You think it's their fault, but you react that way every single time. Why do you do that? Oh yeah, that thing that happened to you when you were an overweight kid. Why are you carrying it forward the last 32 years into everything that everyone says and does? It's funny because if my missus ever blows me out of a cuddle, I should reword that. Um, <laughs> Lucky guy. If, if my missus, oh no, like, I am going somewhere, this is important. But like, let's say with Netflix has finished, and you know, like, there's a, still a bit of life in the old dog, and I fancy a cuddle. If she ever rejects me, Every rejection I've ever felt from a girl or being bullied when I was an overweight kid, in about a tenth of a second, I feel it. And so when that used to happen, that used to affect our relationship because I'd take it personally and then I'd react. And usually when you react, you lash out. And how do you lash out often? By punishing in return, which is stupid if you're a man. And then that creates a situation. So now I have to say, she's not rejecting me. She's tired. She's busy. She's got a lot on her plate. She's had the kids hanging off at her all day, blah, blah, blah. It's not personal. It's not about me. It's your thing. All right. <laughs> Lynn, that's good to know. It happens about four times a week. So <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, now, I use that as example because, well, I don't know why I use that example. Maybe that'll get cut from the final edit. Um, but any time I get rejected, 
What happens is I bring all of my past from the last, I'm 39 now, and this stuff probably started happening when I was seven or eight years old, when I started to get a bit puppy fat. So I'm bringing 32 years of my own shit into the situation. Now that person didn't intend for that to happen. That person had no idea. So anywhere where you bring your own shit into a situation, your own baggage, your own history, your own past, if you can just go, do you know what? That's my own stuff and compartmentalize it and just take a breath. Now, what I usually tend to do in these situations is try and have a bit of space between the reaction and then the decision or the action. And that can be having some time to think. That can be actually calling the end of the meeting or not replying to the email. Or calling the person back. If I can see myself getting really wound up. Hey, look, can we come back to this? And then you need an outlet. So I've got my wife, my business partner, my MD, the team at Progressive. And if I need a rant or a discussion or someone else's opinion, go and take some wise counsel. Now, you have to choose who you bitch and moan to. Versus who you get wise counsel from. And then get yourself in a balanced emotional state and then make the decision. Now, if you did that and that only with all the challenges that you're facing in your business, your business will grow dramatically. They say, don't they, that the business will only grow at the speed you grow. That is the greatest thing. You know, people are very kind when they, they see a lot of things on social media about me or my businesses. And I get a lot of feedback, Rob, I'm very impressed. And they use their own words. I'm not saying what, what I'm saying. I'm saying what they, they say. Of how you deal with critics and trolls and complaints and challenges. But that's a lot of years of wrestling with all my inner emotions. Of, you know, all the fears. And a lot of trial and error. Do nothing. Get into a debate. Get into an argument. Try and shoot them down. Send them a legal letter. There's all these different things you can do when you have defamation. You test and then you just gain some experience on the best way to deal with each, each situation. So, you know, like there's, there's this famous little, well, this is sort of like this little um, trend at the moment. There's a book called something like How Not to Fuck Up Your Kids Too Bad. I think that's, and that's sold a lot of books. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of this stuff at the moment around how we fuck up our kids. We actually don't. We equally fuck them up as we do lift them up because everything that we do serves them in some way. We just perceive it as downside or upside, but it has balanced both. But I think I make the worst decisions around my kids when I'm emotional. And that can be overly high or overly low, overexcited or overly um, challenged. Does that help? What's your name, Dave? Uh, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi, Rob. Hi, everyone. Um, it was a question, a uh, business question. Um, I'm currently uh, scaling up certain businesses and um, my question to you is what tools, what software, what apps do you rely on um, or you can maybe suggest to us here today that um, allow you to do what you need to do? Okay, what are your businesses? Because they may not be relevant. Um, property businesses, um, SA, development, um, yeah. Okay. Um, I tend to use people 
more. So, I mean, the, the obvious ones in service accommodation, I, I guess you use booking.com, I guess you use Airbnb. Um, I don't know if you use any landlord software, um, CRM system. And there's, don't need me to tell you those, you probably use them already. Um, there are probably some landlord related systems that are also part CRM, I believe Zoho and um, Amir Sadiq has a landlord software, which I think I'm told is pretty decent. Sorry, can you repeat that one, uh, that one again? Sorry? Can you repeat that one again? His name is um, Amir Sadiq. He has a landlord software, which I'm told is quite good. I don't use it because I have a letting agency. In our letting agency, we use CFP Winman, which is one of the sort of bigger landlord software engines that are used. Um, so the thing I've found with tools, apps, systems, is some are, are good for growing or scaling businesses and some are good for startups and so, you know so like for um email marketing and crm infusionsoft is really good but it's a bit overkill for a startup because it does way more things than you need and therefore is very complicated um so you might want to start with something more simple um what i tend to do is write everything that I do in a function or a business or a vertical such that anyone who doesn't really know an unskilled individual could work out most of it from my training notes. That becomes a, a manual as you develop it over time. And then within that you put the main apps and software that you use and then someone MD, PA, ops manager becomes the interim manager of that business until such time as you can get them skilled up so you can step back. So like I'm a little bit more old school. I'm in that middle generation. You know my dad he has a dumb phone, not a smartphone. Uh, and he doesn't want a phone that does anything other than dials out and in. Um, and then, of course, there's the millennial generation, generation X or Y or whatever, who like, don't know a world without internet and apps and everything that they do on their phone. They've got a million apps and run everything from there. And, I'm sort of stuck in, I'm almost in the no man's land of that. So I don't use very many apps. Um, I use WhatsApp and Evernote. WhatsApp for communication. Evernote for documentation. I use WeTransfer to pass any documentation or podcast recordings when I'm out and about to my team. And I let my team manage all the systems. So I don't have access to CFP Winman, Infusionsoft, all the sales CRM systems that we run. I don't even have the logins to them. I've no idea how they work. Um, the three most important staff you'll ever hire, I believe, is a PA, 
an MD or an ops manager and a head of marketing. Now, here's why. Some people say, well, what about sales, Rob? Well, the things with, with sales is you can do that on a commission only, consultative basis, even a tele-sales team. I mean, you can marketing to a degree, but I've hired a boatload of marketing consultants who didn't live up to their promise. Um, so the key to scaling up is that number two, your number two. That's the key. It's not an app or a piece of software. It's your number two. Because your number two takes over number one, what you do. And then as soon as that is taken over, then you're liberated. So our MD, she does all of our trainer contracts, all of our partnership agreements, all of the splits. She does all of the communication of the vision to the team. She runs all the team meetings. She does all the... Um, recruitment or the interviews other than the FD, Mark and I, um, we've recently hired a new FD and Mark and I sat in that interview, but that's the only interview I've sat in for what feels like years. Um, and my role is to have a really good relationship with her so that she feels inspired and motivated and supercharged. And my hedge, in case something happens to her or she leaves, it, uh, it's a documentation, the training manual and the backup we have to her or knowing someone who could replace her. And whether you're SA or whatever business, service accommodation for those who don't know what that is, that works. Now, if you don't have that, you are busy AF. <laughs> Running around WTF, not RO. F-L-O-M-G. <laughs> you can see I'm an older generation. Yeah, now, every one of you in this room, thank you for coming, by the way. Everyone listening to this podcast, if this makes the final cut for the 300th episode, you don't need me to tell you that you need to get on paper or on Evernote or on a piece of audio or on a screen grab webinar recording, you don't need me to tell you that everything you do needs to be written down. But have you done it? I bet no one in this room and I bet no one listening has every part of their role and everything that they know documented and systemized. If they did, they can start the process of scaling up or leveraging back or having a lifestyle business because, you know, they say, don't they, about entrepreneurs and hustlers that we give up a 40 hour a week for an 80 hour a week. I believe that's only A, at the very start, B, if you have no family and no desire to have anything in your life other than your business, or C, people who are busy doing the wrong things. And people say that like it's a good thing. Yeah, 80 hours a week, badge of honour. Look at my stripes, eight hour a week. Hustle, motherfucker. And like, you're a loser. You only did 70 hours and you took a lunch, you loser. You're going to fail. Well, think about that dog humping the lamppost. That dog ain't going to hump that lamppost for five years. If you go back in five years, that dog won't be humping that lamppost anymore. Unless it's an ultra marathon runner dog. But if it is, it'll start slow. I'll put some Barry White on. <laughs> I think we should move on to the next question. <laughs> What's your name? 
Hi, my name's Shona. Hi, Shona. Um, just some advice if you have for investing with family, with a family pot. Of my, I hear some... <laughs> with okay, a do you want to be more money. specific? Um, well, my first thought is that we need to invest in property. And I guess I'm just... Advice on how to deal with the workload of it and how should we all be involved? Should one person take the lead? And then also, if not property, is there anything else you would recommend we could invest in? Okay. So is this something that's already agreed with your family or you're looking to pitch to them or is in discussion? They believe I should take the lead because I have a little bit of a property background. We have some property already. So they're kind of like, okay, yeah, you go and do that. Yeah. All right. So when it comes to doing joint ventures, I believe the best place to start from is equal share, shareholding, split, equity, profit, uplift, and really clear, delineated and polarizing responsibilities between the parties. You start from there. Now, JVs get complicated. The more you've done and the more they get negotiated, it's not always that simple. But you start from there. So in your instance of starting to look for buying properties and maybe family investing in, you doing all the work and then putting in all the money is actually fair exchange and a good way of doing it. Because if you put a bit in and they put a bit in and you do a bit and they do a bit, that's going to get confused, muddy. You're going to think, well, why are you doing that? And they're going to get in your way and you're going to get in their way and you're going to be doing more work than them and it's going to piss you off because you put equal money in and there's going to be that lack of fairness. So I don't go into a joint venture now unless I feel like it's fair. And in the early days, you go into a joint venture thinking, what's fair for me? If you want sustainable JVs and you've done them long enough, you also try and look at, from their perspective, what will be fair to them, even if they don't see it, because they will soon. Because as soon as a, if there's a lack of perceived fairness, think cracks start to appear. Now, if those cracks are within the family, that's obviously a, that has other damaging potential. So keep it really clear. They put all the money in, you do all the work. Now, there's this should you or shouldn't you invest with your family? Well, I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. But here's what I think. Mark and I had done a few joint ventures. Well, no, actually. Yeah. Mark and I had done a few joint ventures with his mum. And Mark was worried about doing joint ventures with his family, which suited me because it weren't my family. <laughs> but we made it work. And then my mum turned around and went, well, what about me? And where my perception was, it might be a risk doing joint ventures and, and using family money, my mum almost felt left out. And that just, I'd never thought about it like that. Also, you know, you, would, you should step up when it comes to any JV and when you're using other people's money and you should use it responsibly. But if it's family money, you should maybe go the extra mile. Also, back to the question we had about being a coach and what did I learn, learn in my business? Doing deals with family, yes, on the one side, it could go wrong and be worse, but then that teaches you better emotional skills to manage that. But as with any joint venture, clarity of roles and responsibilities. So if it's really clear that you're doing all the work 
and they just put in the money and their job is to put in the money and that's it and that's what they want. And your job is to do all the work and that's clear when, when situations arise that are difficult because they will. Well, it's pretty clear who does what. And if it starts to get a bit blamey or whatever, just wait a minute, this is my job and I'll fix it. Yeah. Now, whenever you borrow money, especially family, give them security over the asset. So if you give them first charge or legal restriction or good security on the asset, you've reduced their risk because if something goes wrong, which it might, because that's life, they still have that asset. Uh, and I believe in that when you're putting other people's money at risk. And that will also give you some calm. Yeah. All right, cool. What's your name, sir? You're looking very dapper today. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my name's Andrew. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Hi. Um, it's just a question directed to yourself, Rob. Um, as opposed to this person. Yeah. As to, <laughs> I can't see it's all, all, all blended. <laughs> yeah, blend, I like it. <laughs> um, bl blended with the, uh, yeah, the orange wall. Yeah, in um, the orange suit. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, if I'm not mistaken, I think I've heard you said in the past before about not looking at opportunities abroad um, due to, you know, your change in lifestyle with your family. Um, if somebody had to put you on the spot to start something up internationally, um, one, what, what would you do? And two, where would, you, where would you do it? Okay. So do you mean property or general business? So it, 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 could be, it could be property. It could be setting up sort of training centers like you have now in different countries. Okay. So your pick. Yeah, so for me, they're really different, those. Okay. Like, I wouldn't invest in international property, no matter what. No matter how compelling, compelling the pitch was, with who it was. And that's not because international property doesn't work. It's because remote investing from where you are becomes a lot harder. You don't know the legals, you don't know the, the tradesmen, you don't know the prices. Like if a London investor or London money comes to Peterborough, they have no idea here and they way overpay because they're comparing London prices to Peterborough. Now, if you're selling, you're laughing all the way to the bank. But Mark and I have been outbid on some buildings we've wanted to buy that we've put a decent offer in. And we've been outbid by like, Twice as much, because London money has no idea of what Peterborough properties are worth per square foot and what conversion costs are per square foot. They've no idea. And in that regard, it's, it's quite frustrating. And Peterborough's 45 minutes on the train, soon to be 37, and they can't work it out. And that's, it's, this is not, like a lot of people, oh, that's bullshit, or that doesn't work, or I made it work, and I've never really seen anyone sustainably make it work. Um, now, the caveat to that is, if you've got a really good contact partner, really experienced person you've known for years and you trust, and they've made an area work and you partner with or invest in them, then you're still following the same fundamentals of a local area, but you're just leveraging them. So if, you know, there was someone in, I don't know, some city in America or Australia or wherever, and they knew the ground better than anyone else, and they bought a lot of property then had experience, I'd consider partnering with them. But I don't need to because that's what we do. Now, for training businesses, it's different. Uh, and that is definitely more globally scalable. Now, in some ways, I'd have been a lot bigger, a lot richer, uh, and a lot more globally scaled if I hadn't had kids and got married. Um, but when I had kids, I wanted to be there 
for my kids growing up. I wanted to go to, you know, every play they did, you know, when they're doing music, you know, the end of year celebrations, you know, all those things that you miss when you're busy setting up your business. I did not want to be that dad. Um, And so, like, just at that point, uh, we were looking at Ireland, we were looking at America, we were looking at Australia, and we were looking to go global. And I got a really good friend who, he got married, had kids, and then got divorced. And then he was able to travel the world because he got divorced and he wasn't able to see his kids quite as as much because of the deal that they had with the separation. And so that's maybe my parallel universe where if I'd have had a different life where I didn't have my kids and, and my life and my wife and everything that I have now, which, by the way, I wouldn't change for the world, I'd have gone globally. Now, here's how I'd have done it. So number one is I probably would have gone to English-speaking countries first, you know, predominantly one like America, Australia, because I feel like they're the most similar to the UK. So 70% of what I've learned in this country, I can carry over. That's the first thing. Um, America is so vast and huge. All the influences in America are massive. So I feel like there's some growth potential there for a um, not very well speaking Englishman like me. The, the good thing is the Americans think I'm posh. Oh, London, red buses, private school, red brick, Rob Moore. They have no idea, do they? About me, they have an idea. Um, I would, while I'm doing it, look at who's doing really well internationally that I could partner with. Because if I could partner with someone, I wouldn't have to go there on the ground for myself. The next thing I might do is, could I look at setting up a business that didn't need me to have an office there? Now, training businesses, you know, where you're selling online products, in, in a lot of ways, they're quite good because you don't necessarily have to have a massive office or stock premises. So that's the next thing I'd look into. Um, I'd start looking at my analytics of my podcast downloads. You know, when you run webinars, when you look at your Facebook and your Google analytics, and I'd start looking at where are a high percentage of the followers listening to me from. So on my podcast, you've got UK, America, Ireland, France, unknown. They're the top five. And, And if I had it in front of me, I'd be able to list. And so I'd probably go in order there and do some testing. The next thing then is I wouldn't go big on premises on committing to launch massively in a country until I'd done a decent amount of testing first. Because otherwise I'm just creating all this overhead and risk and I've no idea if it's going to work or not. Now, the way I've also set up my life, and again, no regrets. I just know I could have had a different life. Um, I'll only take overseas speaking engagements when I travel with my family overseas. And... I'll run events overseas when I travel with my family overseas. And if I could merge and dovetail that into my future growth plans, so I go to Cayman every year for three or four weeks, most of a month. I go to Dubai every year for a few weeks. Um, we've been to some sort of a, the, um, the nicer, more sort of southern European countries doing speaker boot camps and book writing boot camps. Now, if I can go and book some speaking gigs or go and do some research on the ground as to the market I'm in there and and merge that in, I'll do that because that's a leverage of time. 
But other than that, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm the guy that loves to do new stuff all the time. And so entrepreneurs are quite commonly like that. The downside of that is we do too many things. You know, we, we chase too many shiny objects, like magpies. All right. Rob, what's your name, sir? Rob. Hi, Rob. Hi, Rob. Thanks for uh, talking today. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. Uh, I'm really relieved that we're, all the seats are full and there's not an empty room for my own podcast. Apart from, apart from the one next to you. Yeah. Or the fact that you were here for the big guest that isn't here. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> um, for solopreneurs that have got a business they've started, it's got lots of potential, that are looking for to expand that business, they've got potential investment that could expand the business and scale their business, but also for business partners, there's a chance that they can do it by themselves, scale it by themselves and keep 100%, but actually it'd be quicker, easier and potentially more scalable to bring someone else in. How do you determine who's the right person? Because <clears throat> if there's someone in their niche that knows the niche very well and has got good contacts, that's the same as them, they might not be the right person to partner with, but if there's someone that's not in their niche, knows nothing about their niche, but knows business very well, and is the opposite of the, the solopreneur, they might partner very well, much like potentially you, you, and, you and Mark in, in the opposite personalities. Okay. Um, so I need to give you two answers. So you better put your seatbelt on for this <laughs> and hang on for the ride. I don't think we'll get to this side of the room, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> right. There are equal upsides and downsides to raising cash and giving away equity shareholding in your business. And usually what happens is we only see one polarised extreme when we are emotional, i.e. things aren't going well, I'm struggling, I need to go, I need external money. And you're only looking at the upside, not the downside. So I'm going to talk about both of those scenarios first and then I'll talk about the partner you, that you choose because I think it's important to lead with that. So when you said it will be quicker and easier to grow with money, that is not the case. It will be more chaotic and there'll be more wastage and it might be quicker and it might, won't necessarily be easier. It will be different. I'll give you an example of this. So after that best year of doing £19 million on the top line, not including all of our other streams of income, um, I got really aggressive with my growth strategy. And one of those reasons was because I'd been really careful for like nine years. And I, and I, and I thought, now's our time. I've got plenty of money to spend. We've got a good footholding in our niche. We usurped the previous biggest training company in terms of numbers of people we've trained and turnover. So we're the biggest training company in the UK for property. Now's our time to go big. And it's like I've been waiting nine years for this. And so I just said, right, any role we need to hire, as long as we get a good person, hire them. Anything we need to spend on marketing, as long as it's been tested, spend. And about nine months later, we had people in the office that probably shouldn't have been there, or we were lazy, or we had too many staff in some instances. We had this sort of third level where people could hide in the middle that we'd never had before, that, they'd always sit, that people had always said in corporates, you have so many levels that sometimes hide, people hide in the middle. 
and just shuffle papers from the level below to the level above and don't really do anything. And I'd never really seen that because I'd never worked in a corporate job. You can't call working in my dad's pub corporate. Um, and we started to see that. And I'm looking around going, holy shit, you get a full-time salary and you do nothing. If it ever fails for me, I'll have your job. Um, so I started to see that that I'd never seen. Um, in a three-month period in Progressive, we had £150,000 unaccounted for marketing spend. Like, we spent one hundred and fifty grand on marketing. Well, actually, what I should have done was gone down the bank. I should have got out one hundred and fifty grand worth of £50 notes, rolled it up and smoked it. What I should have done. Um, and we had all this wastage because we had money. So when you have money, you, what do you use as the resource? Money. When you don't have money, what do you use as a resource? Resourcefulness, creativity, hustle, persistence. That you don't, if someone gave you five million quid, say go play with that and grow your business, you'd get lazy. You would. Now, if you have something that requires money, like a patent for an invention that requires materials and blah, you know, a lot of tech companies need money for coders and they need to build a thing. That's different. You need money for that. But it might be worthy it being your own. Like I think Dyson, he spent, I think he got himself something like 20 million pound in personal debt. You know, with all the cyclone technology and sort of the vacuum cleaners, he was sort of you're trying to get figured out. Um, I'm not saying get 20 million quid in 20 million pounds in personal debt before you start your business, by the way. Um, and like, I know in periods of my life where I've done the best marketing or I've had made the best strategic decisions in the business, that's often been when I've had a lack of other resource. Um, and I'm not the sort of person that gets lazy or gets comfortable or entitled very easily, but it's just natural human nature. So... If you can, if you're going to get external partners, try not to lose that. Now, an external partner might know this because they're wise and they might drip feed you the money. And I think that would be good to do anyway. Don't take a lump of it, drip feed it. Um, and sort of progressively invest in the resources you need to grow the business. Now, of course, upsides are faster growth, are in theory easier but, you know, like when you have money and you spend it, you create a whole new level of problems. You've got more staff to manage. You've got to check that that money is being invested well. Um, OK, finding this partner then. It depends what the partner's doing. If the partner's investing for the growth of the business from a, from a monetary point of view, you may just need the money. You know, like a, a sort of like a, a VC or, you know, like. A pure cash investment. If you're looking for a partner to have roles within the business, you want someone ideally who has different roles and responsibilities and a different personality and different skills and interests within the umbrella of your business model. That's the best fit. So Mark and I 
the things we have in common are a very clear vision that we want to be in business for the rest of our lives and we love property and we'll endure all the challenges that property and business and everything that we do come along the way. We don't want to throw the towel in and even when it's hard, this is what we want to be doing even if we don't feel like it in the moment. That is always present. Well, until Mark fucks me off. Because who knows? <laughs> um, but we've been going 12 years now, so it's, it's, it's the past. Is, is the indicator. W within that constant, everything else is different that Mark and I do day to day. So the roles, the responsibilities, the interests, the skills, the KRAs, key result areas, they're completely different. Now, if you've got an active partner, Rob and everyone, that's what you want. If they're a passive partner, you might just need the money and the contacts. You've got to think about are they an active or a passive partner. Now, not all money has the same value. So no, no pound is ever worth the same because you could get money that comes with demands and leverage and, you know, someone who turns you over and, you know, make, has unrealistic expectations and want to control you. You could have the same money that comes with contacts, resources, a dream, a vision, getting you into higher levels of network, really excited about your vision and believes in you. This is why you should never raise money when you're desperate. But what do we do often? I'm desperate, I'll go on a finance raise. You want to make sure you're not doing it under desperate circumstances or in desperate emotions. Keep yourself balanced. All right, cool. Hopefully that's useful. Come to Natalie at the front. Hi. <laughs> well, now we're on this side. Comfortable? Yeah, I'm all good, thanks. Good. Thanks for having us. Pleasure, thank you for being here. Thank you. Um, so I've written it down because I'll forget. Um, so as a person's influence grows, um, how do you deal with being in the limelight more and staying grounded and not getting overwhelmed? That sounds like three separate questions, um, which is fine, by the way. Um, how do you deal with being in the limelight more? Um, I try and be grateful for the fact that there are a lot of people out there now in the world, except this guy who's just fucked off, um, <laughs> uh, who value me. Subscribe to my video, subscribe to my podcast, send me all the thank you messages and stuff like that. Um, now, I never really, I always wanted to be in the limelight, but it wasn't, well, the reason I wanted to be in the limelight is because I wanted to be valued more because I felt like I wasn't valued enough when I was young. So that's my baggage that was created, which we've, we've all got baggage, but the baggage is the voids. The voids create the values because the voids, the things that we aren't enough of, we go and search to fill up. Those things that we go and search, we fulfill. Fulfilling is to fill our voids. So our strengths and weaknesses, our results and our baggage are all interlinked. You can't separate them. And, and I, learning that was really helpful for me, knowing that all the baggage I'd had in my life were the things that created the voids, which made me strive to want to go and do the things that I go and do. So when people say, oh, Rob, you just want to be in the limelight, like it's some kind of bad thing, they have no idea what I went through for 32 years to want to be in the limelight. And also, it's not bad to want to be in the limelight, just like it's not bad to not want to be in the limelight. I'm grateful for every person that has had some kind of run-in or experience with me, good or bad. Because I never had that. And that's a great gift to me. And it might be superficial, but it does boost my self-worth. 
So that's how I deal with being in the limelight. Now, of course, the next thing is how do you deal with being in the limelight? And that question seems to be driven by there must be some downsides to being in the limelight. So what are your perceived downsides to being in the limelight or the things that you might be wrestling with for being in the limelight? I get lots of weirdos message me. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for being honest. Sorry about that, by the way. Um, You've got okay. your own folder. Yeah. Um, like, what I try and do when... I, I don't know what the definition of is a, of a weirdo messaging. Um, <laughs> See what I'm doing here. Everything we've just said, like, um, th th I think I'm going to split this into two. Th there's the sort of weirdo that a woman like you would get from a man, and then there's the sort of a weirdo that I'd get, and they're different. They, they are different, and I don't know what it's like to get the whatever dick pics, is that what they call them nowadays? <laughs> I've never had one. In fact, I got one. I did get one. Um, it was only a few months ago. And I was like, it's, it's always time to celebrate when you've got a, a new first. Um, I didn't even know what one was. Um, so there's that kind of weirdo. I'm in love with you, blah, blah, blah. Now, I do actually get quite a few of those from Korea and China, strangely. The fans I get over there are like, because I've got books translated over there. And the, the, you know, the fans over there are really much more intense. Um, you know, but like, I don't know what kind of, like, if you're a woman, you're just going to get all so much of that shit. And I couldn't tell you what that's like, because I'm a man and I don't get it so bad. What I can tell you with is when I get something that's just quite clearly weird, could go whatever, I just hit the block button. Just hit the spam button, um, you know, and, and, and block them out. Because that could turn into something really quite nasty. Um, and you don't even want to get it there. Now, so that's real, you know, real weirdos. But like limelight and weirdo for woman are inextricably linked. You can't have limelight and fans without weirdos. Now, I don't get very many weirdos, but I still get. But, but I want to. I'm stopping myself saying weirdo because I'll come to my second point in a minute. But limelight and critics, trolls, haters, wankers and weirdos. It used to be just critics, trolls and haters. And then it's wankers and now it's weirdos. This is like... It's, there's five different boxes you've got to put them in. You, you can't have one without the other. So if you're grateful for the fans, you have to be grateful for the weirdos too. But don't say thanks for the dick pic and then spam, because then you're going to get, you know, like, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, <laughs> right. So you just have to be grateful for all that you get. Anything that's crossing the line, block. Spam, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, there's the ones in the middle. Now, I think that's, I can more relate to that. So, like, someone emails me or messages me, and I get, like, hundreds a day now. Uh, and, like, there's a certain amount of entitlement, like I own, owe them my time. Or, yeah, you know, what they say I perceive to be, and I'll use your word, weird. So the first thing I have to think is, that's how I think about them. But what are they going through in their life? Maybe they're in a lot of debt. Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they've reached out to a lot of people and not got anywhere. Maybe that, that's their communication style. So when it's, you know, so like I try not to think of them as weird, no matter how weird. And I just try and have these different boxes. So troll, massive 
ulterior motive hater, they get blocked. Um, hater that I could have a bit of fun with, I start to have a bit of fun with, and I don't know why I did that. Um, uh, critic, thanks for your feedback. This is useful. Sorry that it didn't, you know, it wasn't for you this time, but I'll, I'll take that on board. Yeah, okay. Now, when you grow and you get so many of them, you want to have someone in the middle, like an outsourcer or your PA, and they filter all those because, you know, like stuff that gets to you won't get to someone that's managing your inbox. If you were managing my inbox, you'd just have a right laugh. You would just sit there laughing at half of the responses I get. But if I read them, some of them might get through and hurt me. But they won't hurt you because they're not about you. So if there are ones that start to hurt you or get through, just get someone else managing them. You know, an outsourcer manager your inbox and just pass you through. Okay, so that's limelight. What were the, the other two? How do you not get overwhelmed with... I'm overwhelmed all day, every day. Yeah, I'm always overwhelmed. Is that a good thing? Well, actually, that's not strictly true. I'm overwhelmed or I'm bored. And both of them piss me off. Yeah. And when I'm bored, I start annoying the world for things to do, which brings the next round of overwhelm. And then when I'm overwhelmed, I'm shouting at the world for too much to do. And then I go and follow all my models for outsourcing. And then I have nothing to do. And then I've got nothing to do. And then no one loves me. And then I'm bored. And then, and then I'm overwhelmed again. So how do I deal with being overwhelmed? Well, I try and make sure I outsource as much as I can to other people who are better than me at it. Um, I try and be grateful for the fact that I've got a lot to do. Generally speaking, you'll be the most productive when you've got just a bit too much to do rather than not quite enough to do. So that paradox is that when you're slightly overwhelmed, you'll be relentless, efficient, productive on it. You know that feeling when you get a lot done? That's a great feeling. But when it's just a bit too much, that's a really out of control feeling, a heavy feeling. But for me, that's such a fine balance that I'm always seesawing between. But I, I just have to realise that once I get to the point of overwhelm, it's like, my fault. This is what I asked for. So either be grateful for it and roll with it and run really fast or get rid of a few things. And then what was the last one? Yeah, how do you stay grounded? Yeah. It's, it's this weird thing, grounded. Because sometimes being grounded is the worst thing ever. Because Elon Musk, if he was grounded, we wouldn't have Tesla, we wouldn't have SpaceX. If Steve Jobs was grounded, we wouldn't have Apple. So everyone talks like being grounded and humble is good. It's not. It's a single characteristic, a human trait, of which people project onto you as good and want you to be. So I'm trying to be a bit out there, creative, visionary, dreamy, unrealistic, big picture in the right moment. And then I'm trying to be humble, understand and be not out of touch with reality of my community somewhere else. When things are going bad, I'm trying to have a bigger picture and to stay creative to know I can get out of it. And then when things are going really well, then I'm trying to get myself grounded because if I don't get myself grounded, the world will ground me. So you either ground yourself when it's going well or you get yourself into that bigger picture. You know, the Americans call it clouds and dirt. You either get yourself out of one into the other or the world will get you out of it. 
So if you're overly confident and cocky, the world will humiliate you and humbleize you because it will throw you something that will get you like, whoa. So you either do it for yourself, i.e. by disrupting yourself, or you have to wait till the world chucks you that. So I'm just trying to second guess that happening so that it doesn't catch me unawares. So the world's already doing it because you can be guaranteed when my ratings are the highest on my books and podcasts and everything else I launch, I'll get a few one stars and, you know, when things are going at their best, I'll get something shit happen. And then when things are going shit, I'll get something good happen. But I think you're more in control emotionally if you can make it happen before, because you're not, you're not reacting. Because when you react, when you feel out of control, that's when you get really volatile emotionally. Cool. So um, why, how do I stay grounded overall? Because I feel like I've got so much more to do. Like, you know, like when I got to about 10 million pound net worth, I stopped. I still track it, but I stopped being focused on it. Um, so there's this apparently popular study done in America where apparently once you get to around about $70,000 of earnings, the happiness over and above that is marginal or no real greater happiness above that. For me, that wasn't the case. I can't say it's bollocks, but I am going to challenge it slightly. So for me, that figure, that, what, what's the point at which you feel like you don't need to chase money anymore and you're happy? with where you are in the world, but still want to push. For me, that was about 10 million, not 70 grand. And that's UK pounds, not dollars. Like when I made a million, all I wanted to do was make five. So like, yeah, there was still the drive there. Now, when I made 10, I realized I've got enough to live for the rest of my life, the rest of my kids' lives, centuries maybe. I've got the passive income from all the assets. I could buy any number of supercars or houses or whatever. You get a lot for your money in Peterborough, so that's pretty good as well. 10 million in London might buy you nothing. So, you know, it's area dependent as well. Um, that was the figure for me. So that's just a sort of an, an, an unrelated thing, because like, just think there's a lot of bollocks out there about money doesn't make you happy and, you know, this marginal happiness above a certain level. Well, do you know what? 70 grand a year, you can't do anything on that anymore. You cannot do anything on 70 grand a year. What if you want two kids in private school? Bobby and Ariana, seven and four, go to Oundle, which is one of the best schools in, in, in the area. It's 35 grand a year to put them both through. And they're not even in senior school yet. And that's not even for all their uniforms. And then everything else that the wife... And then there's you with watches and cars. And yeah, but watches go up in value, Lynn. <laughs> so, do, so do certain handbags. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway. So, um, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of nonsense about that. Anyway, I was making a point. Give me, give me your last bit that you were talking about. The last of the three. Being grounded. Being grounded. So, yeah, I just know I've got so much more I want to do. So many more books I want to write. So many more people I want to reach. So many more critics that are, they don't even know me yet. 
I've got a lot of critics to make happy and live up to and fill their time. Yeah, so um, that's if people perceive me as grounded, that's how I stay grounded. All right. Next question. Grant, what's your name, sir? It's Grant. Hi, Grant. Hi, everyone. Rob, um, the question I was going to ask you... Which you are asking Which me. I am asking now. Yeah, yes, I love it when people say that. Which has gone away slightly from what I was originally going to ask you, is you get asked questions a lot. What is the question no one ever asked you that you wish they would, and what is your answer? <laughs> so Catherine Turner asked me this when she interviewed me on her podcast, and there was about a two-minute silence. I thought I was original with that, damn. <laughs> so the question is, what question do I wish I'd been asked that I haven't been asked? Yeah. When in my life? Um, we, on your podcast, you always say to your interviewees, is there anything I should have asked you? So is there anything that some of us should have asked you in the past that has never come up? Well, I think if you're in debt, how do I get out of debt? If you want to make 10 million quid, how do I make 10 million quid? If you want to grow your business, how do I grow your business? If you're working 80 hours a week and getting really stressed and your health and your family is struggling a bit, how do I balance being an entrepreneur with all the other aspects of my life? You know, the, the question to ask is the, the one that's most relevant to you. Like how I want to serve you best is for you to ask me the question that if I answered it and gave you some solutions... It's going to make the biggest difference in your life and it's going to move the needle. It's going to potentially solve some of your biggest challenges. If you want to build, you know, like a, a bigger social media following or if you want to run your own courses or, you know, whatever, they're the questions that, that should be being asked. Yeah, like I, I don't want to sound like it's not a good question because it is a good question. It's just a question I can't wrap my brain around. It was supposed to be thought provoking. <laughs> well, it is. It's just not provoked an answer. So, like, the question I wish someone had asked me is the question that had made the biggest difference to me at the time that I didn't know at the time. Put that in your pipe and smoke that one. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So, uh, next question. What's your name? It's Leanne. Leanne. Hi, Leanne. Hiya. My question is... What three bits of advice would you give your children regarding money? Because for me, when I was younger, I got into a lot of debt because I never got any guidance from my parents, school, or anything like that. And I've really paid for that. So sort of what tips would you give your children to try and sort of help them along the way? Okay. So this depends on how old the kids are. Mm -hmm. You know, are they 21 or are they five? It makes a huge difference. So do you want to give me some context? See, so I've got a coming up for two-year-old but I want to make sure through his life I give him enough guidance that when he comes yeah. to sort of, say 18, as soon as he can get like a credit card for me, that was my worst thing ever, yeah. getting a credit card. Okay, cool. Right, now, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you've asked at a perfect time. Like, the problem when you try to teach your kids, as any one of you will know, pretty much when they're born, but often when they turn sort of, two, three, i.e. when they can start to talk, is the person they listen to the least is you. So the, the challenge you have as a parent is not the advice you give them. It's getting the right advice through to them. Now, I never pre predicted this being a dad. 
But sometimes I know that I've given the right advice in the wrong way or too much and it's not worked. Because you just try and get that advice that's really important to you through. But what happens is in the, in the end, the kid goes, I don't want to know about that. I don't want to do about that. Like Bobby knows that putting is the most important part of golf. And I've said it so many times, he doesn't want to fucking putt anymore, just to piss me off. In fact, this morning he was one-handed putting just to piss me off. He was getting a lot of them in as well. <laughs> Cocky little shit. <laughs> um, so I think, right, what do I want to teach my children? What's really important for them? And then I can feel myself fatiguing where I'm getting pissed off with telling them and they're getting pissed off with me telling them. And at that point, I've got to try and change the approach. So the best approach is really young. Well, the best approach to start is really young subconsciously. So the best thing I think to do, one of the best things, is to get a load of storybooks that could have, that are quite generic, that are sort of like hero-based stories. The little red engine that could is a good one. And what you do is you start reading them stories when they're really young and you start putting in the lessons that you want into the book. So like from literally one, I was reading stories to Bobby every night and I got all the golf books I could. Um, and one of them was like a, um, a golf book, um, an alphabet book for golf. I was going to say A is for, and I can't even think of a word beginning with A for golf. A for albatross, B for birdie, you know, that kind of thing. And I start reading it to him. Uh, and then as the books got a little bit less relevant to what I wanted to do, I'd start making up the words. So Bobby would always be the main character and then Daddy would be in there or um, the kids he'd watched on the golf show or the people he was um, playing golf with or the lessons I'd want him to get through the golf or the challenges he's had the last few days that he was wrestling with and worrying about, I'd seed the solutions into the story. Um, and that worked really well until he could fucking read. And then he'd be like, Daddy, that's not what it says. And she says, I'm re who's reading the story, Bobby? You are, all right. And Dad doesn't say that. And then I had to sort of change my... But that worked till he was about four. So when they're really young, managing money, spending versus investing versus saving and what it is, those fundamentals... Um, get them into the storybooks and read them at night. That's the, the first thing you can do. Now, when they start to count, count with money. You know, they count and they count with things at school. Count with money. Really important. Now, a more broad context for raising kids. Now, I'm not the world's greatest parent. Um, I feel like I've got two great kids and I feel like that's more thanks to my wife than me. Um, but I've got to give myself credit where I have done well. And um, I think the important thing to do when you raise your kids, the best thing you can do is to teach them as closely as you can how the world is. So often what we do is we expose them to things or shield them from things in a one-sided way. I.e. if you had it really hard, you'll probably give it a bit easy to your kids. If you're like a, a dad, you might make it harder for your son, but you might protect your daughter and vice versa. What you struggled with and didn't like and have voids and emotional baggage around when you were 
being raised, you'll try and shield them and protect your kids from them. But the world will show them that if you don't. And I talk to my wife about a lot of these things, the money, the sometimes when I feel like our kids are a bit spoiled or entitled. It's not their fault. It's because they've been overexposed to wealth and to poverty and struggle. So I think that the, the greatest gift you can give your children is to give them a balanced experience of how the world is rather than overly giving them struggle or support in a one-sided area. So if, if it's hard for you, then you've got to also not protect them from that. If it's been easy for you, you've got to be careful not to let them get used to that. Because like you said, when you get out in the real world, that's what happens. It hits you hard. And um, I want my kids to get out into the real world and be ready. Yeah. All right, cool. Who's next? Do you speak English on this table? <laughs> no. Hi, my name is Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Whoa, you have got like a, you've, you should do a podcast, that voice. Oh, thank you very much. That's all right. I mean, I'm not coming on to you or anything. It's absolutely fine. You're weird. Not my dad, anyways, it's fine. No, yeah, go on. Um, it's more of a complex question. It's just something that I do believe that we are responsible for our own personal growth. And my question is that over the years, the books you read, the people you talk to, the knowledge that you gather, how do you keep on track of being a, a student of life to, to use the knowledge that you gather for yourself and you know, not being laid back and um, you know, take time to actually to see how far you came with the, the knowledge that you gathered and make it to action? Because there's so many ways of um, being busy but doing nothing. Mm. And knowing that you have all this knowledge, you get pissed off by not using it, but you're still not doing anything you just, because you're busy of doing nothing. And as the days go by, weeks go by, years go by, you come back to the same point over and over and over again, recognizing that you need to be the one to make a decision to, to cut down the things that you don't do, but yet again, you don't do it. Okay. I just want to know how to get out from, from this endless cycle. All right. How old are you? 24 years young. Mate, you ain't there yet. You know, like you, you almost taught like you were, and that's a question. So, but like, at 24, you should be testing things, having fun, starting things up, taking a few risks while you can. So I just want to say to you, if that question was also a personal one as well as a generic one, that at your stage in life, you can do whatever you want and it not cost you too bad. Have you got kids yet? No, in Peterborough, you'd be a granddad by now. <laughs> so, you know, so <laughs> we roll here. <laughs> um, so that's the first thing. Like, a lot of us in the room are 39, 49, 59, 69, 79. You know, we probably would take more risks when we were younger or try those things that we, we, we had passions and dreams for that we didn't. Um, so I think it's good to say to yourself, I'm 24, I can afford to take some risks, I can go for some of the things that I want to go for, some of the knowledge that I've built that I'm not implementing. I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, don't beat yourself up about what you're not doing. Now when I say you, I'm you plural, not you singular. 
But often, you see, like the, um, the downside paradox of personal development. You know, you sound like you read a lot of books, you do a lot of courses, you're well-educated, you're, you're investing in yourself, you know you're a student of life, you know you're learning so much. That is a great attitude. But the paradoxical downside of that is you start beating yourself up because you think you should know more. You know, it's like a parent coach who gets pissed off with their kid or, you know, a fit personal trainer who eats a massive dessert. You're like, I should know better. And that is sometimes the curse of personal development. I've read thousands of books. I've done about 1.2, 1.3 million pounds worth of courses. I still fuck up. I still make mistakes. I still get emotional. Uh, anger much less. I need to tell you this. I shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to tell you this. So, like... Basically, I'm trying to manage the emotions that I built up when I was young. But we all have all the emotions that every human being has, unless there's some kind of like, you know, there's something born wrong with our brain or different where there's certain, like, you know, if you're autistic, there's certain emotions you don't have as much because that's how you were born. But that aside, you, we all have anger, bitterness, jealousy, love, Gratitude, humility, cocking, every human emotion we all have and we're all dealing with them. And so, you know, I, I have had things that have made me angry in the past. And they, I still have that. And um, I took Bobby uh, to golf on Saturday. And um, we, he's got his Shires Tour Sunday. So the Shires Tour is one, one of the second, the, the joint Biggest UK tour for junior golfers. And he's the youngest guy in his tour. And he's top of the order of merit. Some of the kids are 11 and 12. He's seven. And um, he so wants to win. And like I've learned to back off and let him get some of the lessons rather than me be a bit pushy. And he so wants to win. And for two weeks, he's done no practice. And I just couldn't get him out on the course or even for a five minute part. And I tried everything, everything to get him to practice. And I'm trying to talk about what it means to win and link it to the positive and maybe use a bit of motivation and linking it to the negative if you don't. And I couldn't, I just couldn't get through. And I felt like a bad parent. I felt like I'd let him down and prepared him badly for the Shires tour. And we went out on Saturday and he just wasn't really feeling it. I mean, he's fatigued from school and he was dicking about a bit. And you know, he's seven, you're allowed to dick about. Not on my watch, but he does. Um, <laughs> And like, I've got this, he's got this golf bag and it's just, this, he loves this golf bag and I fucking hate this golf bag. I have to carry it, right? And I'm like, you, you, the, the clubs fall into the bag, by the way, I'm getting somewhere with this story. The clubs fall into the bag, I like, um, the legs don't work properly, you put it down, it falls on the floor, the clubs fall out. Every fucking time I pick this club up and I'm trying to manage him, he's running off, there's balls everywhere, I've got everything. And then... So I, I, apparently you just adjust it and then it, it stands up. The golf coach, well, you just adjust it. Look, it stands up perfectly. Not when I've got it. So anyway, so I'm adjusting it and then the legs flap out a bit and then you pick it up and you trip over and I'm tripping over this fucking golf bag. And Bobby's dicking about. And I, I just got so angry. I picked up the golf bag and I got so angry and I fucking threw it into a field. <laughs> the whole golf bag. And I went, ah! <laughs> And Bobby ran into the field to get it, because his golf bag he loved, which I hate. And I ran in with him and I went, get out of the way. And I picked it up and the legs, I snapped them off. And I snapped one off and I'm like, like this golf bag, like it's a, a thing that has an emotion. And, 
And then he starts crying and got really upset. So I snapped the second one off. And like, yeah. Um, and then like, on it, he was crying for about 15 minutes because he's his favourite golf bag. And I was so angry. And now you're all judging me. Um, so we messed around for about 40 minutes. I, we sort of made it up and blah, blah, blah. And thank... that it, uh, Maybe there'll be a... Sel if there's a selfie video of that, that'll definitely go viral. Um, yeah. And then I made up with him and he made up with me and um, we went about our business. Um, and I'd say something like that happens to me about once a year. Now, what I used to do is that used to be like not self-harming in the physical aspect, but self-harming in the emotional aspect. I used to kick and punch things, broken my foot, broken my hand. And I have no idea why I just told you that. <laughs> no idea whatsoever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, actually I do. We're all a work in progress when it comes to our personal development. Uh, we're all dealing with our own baggage. None of us are perfect. You know, there are the people who um, give marriage advice and they, they have divorces. And there are people on the outside that have the perception of a perfect life. Now, and by the way, I checked if there was anyone else on the golf course before I threw that golf bag in the field. Um, and there was no one behind us. And that actually felt really good. You know, as I was snapping the legs off that golf bag, <laughs> like a year of all the shit I've taken. You know, because like, you know what it's like when you're a parent, you have to take all the kids' shit. No, I'm not doing this, no, and no. Bobby thinks he's fucking, Bobby thinks he's fricking Jim Rohn. You know, he thinks he's got the most personal development knowledge in the whole world. Thinks he knows everything. He thinks he's the Dalai Lama, he thinks he's Yoda. He'll come out with all these quotes. He'll have his own social media page with all these image quotes. Bobby Moore, he thinks he knows everything. And so I say to him, Bobby, you're seven, not fucking 30. I don't see this, 39 years old. Um, should we cut this bit out? <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm actually sweating now. So um, I think you're doing really good. I think you're 24. I think you're really knowledgeable. I think that we're all struggling. What I don't think we should do is beat ourselves up about it. So I felt guilty all day, but that guilt served me. So this is the next thing. Like on Sunday, the day after the Shires tour, he came second. He didn't play all that well, but he still came second and he was really happy. And he had a brilliant day, brilliant day. And like I'm sitting there at the end and I said, Bobby, can we get out of here? I want to go. I've got to go. Um, Gemma wanted us back. He's like, no, I want to stay. And he's chatting with all the boys. I want to stay for the presentation and all that. And just seeing him around all the other kids, it was like, I just sat there and I thought, you know what, this is brilliant. He wants to stay. And, and had I not been like that the day before, probably wouldn't have done. It's probably my best caddy day in the last five years as a dad. So what we tend to do is beat ourselves up about all the things we do wrong and the mistakes we make and where we're not going and all of that. How often do we actually go, do you know what, I did a good thing. Like, I didn't hit anyone. You know, like all the, all the rage built up. I took it out on a golf bag that was 55 quid. That's pretty good going because sometimes when people get that angry, they hurt people. I didn't hurt anyone. And, you know, so I should be proud of that. Um, actually, I also picked up the legs, the snap legs, and I threw them into the field. And Bobby went and got them and brought them back. And he was holding these legs. Oh, my golf bag. 
bag. And he put them back in the golf bag and he said, don't worry, mate, we'll fix it. And then as we walked on, I just stuck them in the bin uh, behind me. <laughs> um, and do you know what? Have you seen, what's that character, Chucky? Um, has anyone seen, um, what's the Canadian com comedy? Um, trailer Park Boys. No, you'd have to know that. Um, yeah, so when, when I get rid of that golf bag, that's going to be the best day of my life. It's like the emotional exorcism of that. Um, okay, so your pen and paper ready if you've got one or your iPhone. Now I'll give you some practical tips. Um, I think the first thing you should do is pick the most important thing to you and just get something done. Like if you want to write a book, open a Word document and just start writing words. If you want to design a training course, then just get your Zoom H1 or your audio device and just start talking into it. Because sometimes with all this knowledge that we carry, it just builds this mass of confusion and overwhelm of actually where to start and what to do. Sometimes I'll, feel, I'll turn a podcast off and I'll listen to some music or I won't listen to an audio book for a couple of weeks if I feel like I'm getting in that space where I'm putting so much information in my head is actually becoming counterproductive because that can happen. You just got to pick one thing and, and do it. The next thing is we've got to stop beating ourselves up for where we don't think we are and where we're, you know, like, there are so many 24-year-olds who don't have an amazing accent like you, who aren't, you know, good-looking like you, who aren't experienced and knowledgeable like you who has, haven't got the benefit of being in here like you. I mean, at 24, I wasn't in these kind of circles. You know, I was just going out and getting pissed. And you're, you're in these kind of circles. At 24, that's really impressive. And we tend to compare ourselves to people to deposition ourselves instead of doing the reverse. And I've just finished a chapter, actually, on my, my new book, I'm Worth More. It's not coming out for a while, so don't get too excited. Um, but if you're going to compare yourself then reverse it and do the opposite, i.e., where was I when I was 19? Where am I compared to most 24-year-olds in the country? Where am I compared to 24-year-olds who are starving in Africa? And do the opposite comparison. Because I bet you if you started doing all that, all of a sudden you think, man, I've got so much to be grateful for. Because what we can do is we can drain a lot of time and energy. You know, this beating yourself up and the comparing yourself and all of that, and I should be there and I should be that. I could be worth... 200 million, 500 million, a billion if I'd have grown overseas. But I've stopped comparing myself to that because actually I wanted to be able to be there at that point with my son when I snapped the legs off that golf bag. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be there for that moment, snapping the legs off myself. Not a babysitter, you know, someone else. <laughs> um, yeah, there's some things to think about. If you get yourself stuck, write 50 great things about me and start comparing yourself, yourself favourably and write all the great things about you. The only way to get rid of overwhelm is to do one thing. One thing. It's, no, it, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. One thing. Like I'm writing a book at the moment, and it's my 14th book. And you know what? It should get easier. It doesn't. It's just as hard as my other 13. In fact, sometimes I think those past ones were easier. Why do I think that? Well, maybe because I was more enthused about writing the first one because it was new. But you know what? I don't think that's true. I'm, I think I'm nostalgic of the past. I think every book is equally hard. Why? Because you want to do anything other than that really deep, hard work that's a struggle. But the only way you can write a book is to just wade through the chapters. So sometimes when people are avoiding real progress, it's because they're starting, stopping, starting, stopping, and they're avoiding that point of pain and challenge. So you know, like in, 
in the world of personal development where you see a lot of people, I'm going to do a Forex course, I'm going to do a property course, I'm going to do this course and that course, and they jump from course to course to course to course to course. E-commerce course, I'm going to be a public speaker, I'm going to be an internet marketer, I'm going to be this, 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 this. And there's like the three, the six or the nine month jump like a, like a frog. Why? They get excited, they think the next thing will be easier, they go through, they're excited, and then as soon as they hit the first challenge, oh, the reality kicks in. And then instead of taking the right choice, which is to get better, they wish it was easier and then they go to the next thing with the naive excitement that it's going to be easier. And I do that all the time because that's more my personality. Why have you taken one shoe off? Okay. Hopefully that's useful. And sorry about that. I've taken the most ridiculous tangents today. I, do you know, I, I think I had a fear that 10 questions wouldn't be enough to fill the time. <laughs> and final question. Should we just make this a yes or no? <laughs> Did you have one, Jay, as well? All right, we'll do 11. What's your name, sir? My name is Imran. Hi, Imran. Hi. Uh, my question is, when uh, Progressive was a startup, the first three years, was there ever a period of where you nearly gave up? No. And if you did, how did you overcome any no. challenges? Never nearly gave up. Never. I knew it was what I wanted to do, and I loved it. Were there periods when it was hard? Yeah. Were there periods when I wondered, like when the recession came? That was hard. Like in the early days of Mark and I finding out how we were working and figuring us out as a partnership, that was hard. But you know what, compared to the third world, we had first world problems. That's another thing I think to think about. You know, like they say, people say, oh, first world problems, like we're looking down their nose. Why don't we say first world problems with gratitude? My problems are high quality, first world problems. I'm very grateful for them because I've got food on the table. I've got beautiful kids. I've got an amazing life. I've got all these things that I should be grateful for. Um, it actually wasn't hard. I think at times we thought it was. But now I never felt like giving up. I've never felt like, like maybe, the, maybe this is the wrong answer, but it's the truth. And yeah, I've given you perhaps a bit too much truth in these last couple of hours. But the truth is I've never doubted or felt like throwing the towel in. I've got upset, I've got angry, I've got pissed off. But I've ne no, never. Maybe I'm lucky. Maybe it's a sign that I'm doing what I want to do. What I've tried, like, if we want to give up, it's either because we're not doing the right thing, so it's good feedback, or we're making the small thing mean more than it means. So maybe look at those two things. Ah, oh, I, I want to ditch this. Well, if that feeling comes easily and frequently, that, that's good feedback that maybe you're doing the wrong thing. If you're an emotional person, you get quite volatile. Because we do have different ranges of emotion. Everything you've ever heard me teach is me managing myself within this bandwidth of emotion because it serves my business and because it helps me stay balanced and healthy for the long term. But some of these stories I've shared, the high ones as well, some of the crazy fun things I've done, but at least once a year I've, I lose the plot big time. I just now make sure I'm not in front of everybody, anybody. Um, yeah, but I, you know, I don't make that mean I'm a shit dad or you know, like, I don't want to do this with Bobby anymore. I just make that mean that's a shit golf bag. 
I've, I've stored a few weeks of um, my emotions. Bobby stored a few weeks of him. That was actually a pretty good release. He probably needed the cry. I probably needed the flip out. We were actually really best friends after that, after about mm, 45 minutes of us both managing our ego. It was my best caddying day the next day. So even in those moments. So yeah, that's a couple of things to think about. Jay, what's your name, sir? Jay. Hi, Jay. Hi, Jay. That was my question. <laughs> was it? No, I'm joking. No. Firstly, congratulations on 300 episodes. Thank you. That's an amazing achievement. As a fellow iTunes number one podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> just thought I'd just drop that one in. <laughs> but what was your... What's your name, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> what was your best episode and why? About 60 seconds. <laughs> okay. I think my most disruptive episode was with David Icke. I think the episode where I felt like I had the deepest sense of rapport and got on the most with the guest was Daley Thompson and Aston Merigold. So with Daley Thompson, we went for sushi after and spent about two hours having sushi. And he just told me loads of cool stuff about his life, about how much he got offered to go on Arm and Celebrity, out, get me out of here. And we just sat there like we were mates in his favourite sushi place. And that was just really cool. What a lovely guy. Aston, when he like, you know, I, I was sat waiting at his dance school. Um, and it was just like, it, I felt like we were really good mates after. So I'd say that was for that. The person I've become the most friends with through the podcast has been Kevin Clifton. I've made like a really good, probably lifetime term, time friend out of that. Um, the episode where I was the most nervous, which people tend to like, people tend to like my failings, was when I was interviewing the CEO of Odomars Piguet, because he was kind of like one of my Odomar's Pigo, just one of my favourite brands, and this, we flew out, went to his head offices, and we had loads of tech issues with all the gear before, and it was just such an emotional experience going there. Um, I think the episodes I've done when I've had live people make me, um, like the, this experience is kind of weird for me, because on the one hand, I just feel really grateful that you want to take time out of your day to come and share your afternoon with me. And that makes me feel really great. But I also put a lot of pressure on myself. And like, I feel like this immense feeling of, oh, fuck, you know, did I deliver these last two hours? And did I go off on too many tangents? Did I take too long for the questions? Was that bit right? Was that bit right? Did they like that bit? And I'm not saying this for like me needing any validation. It's just how I feel about it. And I'll just have to deal with that in my own way by talking myself up afterwards um, so the live episodes have been great because each time we've done like a hundredth or two hundredth or two fiftieth or three hundredth we'll try to share it with you um, like maybe doing 300 episodes of a podcast isn't special but maybe it really is how many people get there what reach and impact have we had maybe we're at the start of something great maybe you already have something great the, the point in a podcast, which I got the most feedback that people loved, was when Seth Godin turned the tides on me and started getting into my own 
he started questioning me and getting into my own fears and did some coaching on why do you need more followers, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he sort of really taught me, actually, if you've got the followers you've got on Instagram and Facebook and your podcast, what if you never got another one again? Could you still be happy with what you've done? And, you know, like, it's not just about serving your new follower, is it? It's about continuing to serve your existing one. And, you know, there are some profiles where I've not got that many followers. You know, both of you guys have got way more Instagram followers than me. But, of course, my podcast, you know, I've, I've, I'm doing all right in that game and I'm doing all right in other games. And then if I compare myself to 99.99% of people, they've got 500 followers. If I compare myself to Tim Ferriss, Gary Vaynerchuk, Grant Cardone, Dan Bilzerian, blah, 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 then they've got tens of millions between them. But I'm me. And I've found my little place and this little podcast or this big podcast or whatever is found its little place, which I find really hard to own because it's always like more, bigger, got to be, you know, like that. Uh, uh, uh. But that's brought us together. And if you've had a great day, that's a gift. And if you've had a shit day, I'm sorry. LAUGHTER